Hello and welcome back to the Creed and Culture podcast. It's a pleasure to have Dr. Ard Louie with me today. Hi, Ard. How are you doing? Hi. Good to see you, Luke. Good. Good. You're you're a little bit ill today. Uh, Lemsip. Oh, magic. Grinning, grinning and burying it. Yeah. Good to hear it. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a little about yourself. Well, so I am a professor of theoretical physics here in Oxford. You can see my office in the background here. I've been here for quite a while, since 2006, in fact, in Oxford. And I work mainly on theories of complex systems. So that means how do many individual units together produce behavior, which is more than the sum of the parts. In the last few years, I've been mainly trying to apply these ideas to biology. So I've been interested in self-assembly, things that make themselves. I've been interested in evolution. So how does evolution generate novelty? And I've been very interested as well in, more recently, in ideas around machine learning. So those are AI methods. And the reason I'm interested in, this, in that is because the mathematics that I'm trying to understand evolution with turns out to be very closely linked to the mathematics that I believe is behind neural networks, which are powering the modern AI revolution. Fascinating. What got you into all this, Art? Well, so I've always loved physics since I was small. My parents are biologists. And apparently, I don't remember this, but when I was about 15, I apparently asked them to sit down because I had something to say they wouldn't like, which of course every parent of a teenager is very nervous about. And then it turned out that I wanted to tell them that I was not going to do biology, but physics at university. And it's kind of funny because I've come back to biology now. Mm. Biology again. And so the, you know, they, they say the you know, the fruit never falls far from the tree, but it took me a long time. I, I found biology quite boring in secondary school. It felt like a, just a set of rule, a set of things you were learning, a bunch of facts that seemed largely unconnected, whereas physics had beautiful connections between it. And, and that's what I was really interested in. So I loved, I just loved physics. It was simple as that. I loved it. I went to study at university and did a PhD, did a postdoc, and then got a faculty position and never really doubted that this is what I wanted to do. I doubted whether I'd be able to achieve it. So even when I was an undergraduate, I remember thinking getting into a PhD position would be the ultimate thing I'd be able to achieve. And then once you get a PhD, then the question is, will you make it to the next level and make a postdoc? And then there's a very tricky step from being a postdoc to a, a faculty member. And each step, you know, you you, you worry that you're, you're not going to be able to make that last step, but it, it went each time. So here I am. I love science. I think science is the greatest thing that human beings have ever invented it's brought us enormous advances i mean think i've got my phone here which is more powerful than the computers that took the apollo mission to the moon it's amazing you know we have medicine has brought us huge advances in our quality of life and so there's no question that science has hugely advanced our world and i just think it's fun i really enjoy thinking about it i pinch myself that i get paid money actually you're those that are paying taxes taxpayers money to think about what i think is interesting it's a, it's a very privileged life. So is physics your first love? Uh, my first, yeah. My first academic love is physics. I still love physics. In fact, you know, when I was a university student in the Netherlands, my grandfather, who actually I think would have loved to be an academic, but he was born at a different time in a family without a lot of money and had to leave school at 16 to support the family, worked at a company his whole life, kind of climbed his way up to a management position. And... Uh, I remember when he was 65, he retired and he said, finally, I can do what I really want to do. 
uh, which in his case was a lot of camping and, and going out. Uh, and I remember contrasting that with some professors of mine in the University of Utrecht, who in their 80s were still coming in every day to the university and just absolutely loved it. And I thought, well, I want to have a job where even after I'm no longer paid, I still do it because I love it. And that's the contrast, I think. Um, there's not many jobs in the world where that's the case. People love it enough that they keep going even after. Yeah. I mean, one of my colleagues here, in, a friend of mine, sued the university because they were trying to make him retire. And he had, in fact, raised enough funding to pay his, his own salary for the next number of years. And they wanted him to retire. And he, um, he actually won the lawsuit against them because he didn't want to be made to retire because he wanted to keep working. And so it's not every physicist is that way, but actually a remarkable number yeah. of them are. And we just love what we're doing. I think it's really fun. Yeah. So, and in a sense, and, reti- and you get paid. Yeah. And in retirement, you get to do all the stuff you love without the meetings and some of the admin and stuff. So it's exactly it's, so, it's perfect. So, well, although actually a number of the, my, my retired colleagues have kind of, they feel they do some admin and things just because they feel like they want to give back a little bit. Ah, okay. But they, yeah, they, they love working. There's, I've got colleagues in their 80s who still come in regularly. Yeah. They're very, active, they're very engaged and they just think it's fun. Yeah. No, that's so. that's the dream. That's theology to me, although I'm nowhere near as good at it as you are at, at physics. But clearly, Arj, you're highly trained in physics and biology and even some mathematics there from what you were saying. And you're also public knowledge, you're, you're a Christian as well. And you've spoken about the theory of evolution. And it strikes me that in your case, you're not just a scientist who's a Christian who has to think about the theory of evolution, you know, figure out what it means for their faith. But you actually work on the theory. Yeah, I do. So, yeah. you know, there's, there's not many people who will have thought about it more, perhaps from a, a Christian perspective. So how might you explain the theory of evolution to a lay person? Well, it's a, it's a very good question. And one of the problems is that the, that there is no theory of evolution. Sure. I often say um, in a Christian context, I think it's helpful to think of evolution at at least three different levels. And the first level is just more geology, which is, has there been change over time? So if we start digging into the earth, do we find that there are fossils in old parts of the rock that look quite different from the things we see today? So you know, we see the dinosaurs we're around till about 65 million years ago that their first animals appeared about 500 million years ago. And before that, really, there was no complicated multicellular life that mammals appeared after the dinosaurs. They kind of, they, they really began to flourish after the dinosaurs disappeared. Those are the kinds of things that you can see in geology. So there's been change over time. That's I think unambiguously true. And that I'll call that evolution. Number one, basically natural history. Things have changed over time. Then there's a question of what caused that change? How did that change happen? And that might be evolution number two, where the dominant theory is something linked to Darwin's idea of evolution proceeds by random variation. So changes in your offspring, your children are different from you. And then if that change brings some kind of selective advantage, really all it means is, for example, let's say that um, the Martin genes, your genes are fitter than my genes. All that means is I have two children, you may have four, and because of your genes, those four each have all four, right? So you have four, you have 16 grandchildren, 32 great-grandchildren, whereas I'll have four grandchildren and only eight great-grandchildren. After a little while, the Martins will dominate the world. That's all that fitness means, that some property of your genes 
make you have more offspring. And if that's the case, and over time, there'll be lots of Mortons and eventually they'll, be, they'll dominate and the Louis will be gone. And that's natural selection, effectively. And so Darwin came up with that idea. That explains the change over time. And so we'll call it evolution number two. Now, Christians believe that this is a mechanism that God created. We can observe it in the lab. We saw it recently with the, the COVID-19 pandemic, the coronavirus, SARS virus, which mutates all the time. And when we, that's why we have to keep changing our vaccines because we're mutating all the time. We can observe it in real time. So we believe that the, the, the mutations happen. It's interesting that even our immune systems employ this technique. So our immune system has a limited number of proteins that basically fight off the, the things that attack us. And the way they do that is with a, a very rapid evolutionary process. It has fast mutations and it mutates until it claps onto something and then that selects for that. And so it turns out that probably the most efficient way of solving a problem like the immune system problem where you've got to be able to respond to an incredibly wide array of pathogens with a limited number of building blocks is to use this evolutionary method. So that's evolution number two. It's a, it's a, it's a and, and Darwin's idea is basically that this thing that we know happens on a small scale also explains the longer term changes like dinosaurs and humans and everything before that. And then there's evolution number three, which is really evolution as a worldview, as a way of thinking about the world. So very famously, my colleague Richard Dawkins said, you know, Darwin allowed you to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Or another very famous evolutionary biologist from George Gaylord Simpson, who said, you know, man is the product of a process which did not have him in mind. You know, he's an accident. And that's the idea that I call that kind of, I call the evolutionism. It's really looking at evolution and trying to extract theology from it. It's actually what theologians call natural theology. You look at nature and you extract theology from it, except that Richard Dawkins is not a natural theologian. He's a natural atheologian, but he is looking at nature and saying, this tells us something about who we are and what purpose is and what life is. And I think that is wrong by and large. I think a lot of the, unfortunately, a lot of the popularization of evolution also mixes in this evolutionism all the time. And I just disagree. I don't think that's what evolution tells us at all. I think that's bad natural theology. But it's very easy for people to conflate those three different levels of thinking about it. And so I have a lot of sympathy for Christians who, for example, say, but I don't believe that I am the product of a purposeless process. I believe I, I'm here for a, a reason. And I think we all, I think it's actually really important to believe that humans do have purpose. And so if some scientist goes around telling me that science has told me that we don't have purpose, so much the worse for the science is the response that is often given to that. Okay. Interestingly, in the UK, the fraction of people who are suspicious of evolutionism, really, but in a polls, which is basically asking them if they believe in uh, evolution can explain everything, is considerably higher than the number of people that go to church or to the mosque mm. once a week. And so it's, I think it's just an instinct that people have that somehow that story can't be the whole story. Mm. I think they're right in that instinct. And I think that, that popularization has really tr muddied the waters. So mm. when you ask me what do I work on, I'm really working on that second level of evolution. I'm trying to understand how mutations and natural selection work together, what kind of things that they do. I think it's super interesting, super fun. I think there's a lot we don't understand, but a lot that we're learning. But I think I don't think it has anything to do with the evolutionism that 
Yeah, I got you. That's really that's really helpful and clear. So I guess we can focus in then on the sec on the sort of Darwinian side of things, and that's of course where you find the idea of the common ancestor. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Do you want to just expand on that very briefly for yeah, us? So, so one of the Darwinian ideas. So the, the idea of Darwinian evolution is partially this idea that the change happens by mutations. Actually, Darwin didn't know about mutations, but, but variations, what he called it. We now realize those were caused by mutations predominantly, and then natural selection, and that that accumulates change over time. Then if you then work that backwards, then what it means is that we're related to previous species, and those species are related to previous species because that change has happened gradually from one generation to the next. And if you keep going back, the the assumption is that if you keep going back, you're going to find the last common ancestor. So there was one ancestor from which we all diverged eventually would be the idea. And that basically means that we're linked to previous organisms. So for humans, you know, make it slightly more controversial, hmm. we all were apes. Um, that's I think nobody would doubt that we're closest to great apes in our kind of physiology, in, in how we how we um how our biology functions. And we seem to be closest to chimpanzees, the next closest we are to is gorillas, the next closest we are is to gibbons, for example. And so if you look at the family tree of monkeys, what people think happened is there were some earlier monkeys and at some point the gibbons split off, at some point the gorillas split off, at some point the chimpanzees split off, and then we came. And that would be the, the kind of common descent argument. Mm-hmm. And then the question would be, is there, besides looking at, you could, besides looking at physiological similarities by which you could make that same tree, could you find other ways of looking to see where that tree is there. And that's where a lot of genetic evidence is used nowadays. So nowadays we make those trees not by looking at organisms, but by looking at genetic similarity. And so we're genetically closest related to chimpanzees, and then gorillas, then orangutans, then gibbons. And you can see that by looking at our genes, for example. I think the evidence for it is pretty unambiguous. Um, yeah, we could we could we could just talk. We could talk a lot more about that. I know just the so the class, you know, the sort of one hundred and one objection against Darwinianism that you hear from from some people is, uh, I guess this is almost a joke, but you know, for if we've evolved, then why aren't why aren't monkeys still turning into humans or something? And your sort of one sentence response to that are it is to say that the the process by which we we split off from chimpanzees five million years ago, which is a long time. Mm-hmm. So we evolved in a different direction than they did. That's basically it. Good. One sentence. Thank you. So this obviously creates a big question for the Christian faith because of Genesis 1 and 2. So the idea that God created human beings uh, separately from the other animals. And there's been a range of ways that Christians have responded to Darwinism. Could you just sort of outline a sense of what a couple of the main ways of responding to Darwinism are, are by Christians? Yeah, so, so I think it's important to remember what Christians are responding to is not really Darwinism. <laughs> I'm getting all my terms wrong. Go no, on. No, I know. I, I think people say Darwinism, but unfortunately, Dar- the word Darwinism has, has become quite, just like the word evolution, a slightly squishy word. So Go I think on. Yep. It's easier just to say. Christians are mainly responding to natural history when they're looking at Genesis. When Christians respond to Darwinism, they're thinking about natural selection, they're often thinking about the problem of evil. Why did God use suffering to create novelty? Right? And uh-huh. 
when they're asking themselves questions about Genesis, they're asking really about natural history. At which point did something like modern humans appear? Yeah. Yeah. And that, in fact, you do, does, it's not really that related to biology. It's, it's more like archaeology, right? So very clearly in the Genesis texts, Adam and Eve leave the garden. They till the ground. Cain and Abel already specialize in crops and animals. Archaeology tells us that that's a relatively recent phenomenon about 10,000 years ago. And so the Bible is describing something relatively recent in archaeological terms. So regardless of what you believe about evolutionary biology, it's not talking about hunting hunter-gatherers. Yeah, sure. But I, I think it's the common ancestor point that... Yeah, I, but I, I, of... I see people... So, okay, so I would say I don't see any biblical problem with a common ancestor at all. I see where for people's natural theology, this can cause problems. But I think that's because... I actually think that the reason for that is actually faulty theology. And it goes as follows. Mm -hmm. People often feel that we are diminished if it turns out that our physicality is linked to monkeys, for example. Mm -hmm. Surely we're not just monkeys. That's a flaw. And the flaw is very obvious if you think about it. The reason we have value before God is not because we're rich or poor, smart or dumb, black or white, any of those things, male or female. We have value before God because God created us and God loved us. And therefore, any kind of worry that we have that somehow something about our physicality makes us less valuable is a sub-Christian way of thinking about our value. It, it misunderstands where our value comes from. Our value does not come from the fact that we are did or did not arise from some particular pathway. Whether we came from monkeys or didn't come from monkeys is irrelevant to how God thinks about us. What? God thinks about us is what scripture tells us God thinks about us. That's where it comes from, not about what we think about ourselves. I recognize that this is common objection and a often strong feeling of unhappiness that people have that they may have come from monkeys, but that's just not, that's not a Christian idea. That's a pagan idea that they're, in, that they're importing into their faith. And I would push back on them and say, you need to be careful of that because that's not a Christian doctrine. Yeah. I got that. I guess I'm thinking that the main reason people tend to perhaps push back against the common ancestor view is is because they're worried about the Bible. So they'll say the Bible says that God created human beings separately. And so we, we can't believe in the common answer. Would, would that not be the most common yeah, okay, that, objection? That, so that, that, fair enough. That would be a different kind of argument, right? Yeah. Um, and then that, that actually... I'm just saying is if you look at the Genesis text, um, you have more problems than just common descent. You've got to think to yourself about why did, why were Adam and Eve created essentially as proto-farmers when archaeology tells us that people were hunter-gatherers for a very long period of time? Hmm. What happened? Where did those people come from? You know, who are they? Et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of problems that I just I say archaeology brings up. I pick on archaeology just to point out that it has nothing to do with Darwin. Yeah. yeah. So let's. And so then the question is, what yeah, what is yeah. the biblical text trying to do, right? Mm. And then we need to be very careful and ask ourselves, what do those first few chapters of Genesis look like in terms of text? So are they proto history? You know, very much like Luke, right, where he says, "I'm giving you my most excellent Theophilus an orderly account of what happened," which is what Luke, Luke does. And you know, you read the Gospels, and they're they're very much reportage of people looking at what they said. Peter and John threw the nets over to the other side and they caught 156 fish. It's very detailed factual information 
that as C.S. Lewis famously said, you know, one of the greatest evidences for the the fact that the Gospels were not made up is that the the literary genre of putting in these kind of factual details to make a story seem more alive is a modern phenomenon. And either mm. these people, the writers, were the greatest literary innovators of all time, with nobody before them and nobody after them, or this is just reportage. They were just writing down what they really believed that they saw. So I believe that those gospel accounts are basically proto-history. I say proto-history because they weren't modern historians, but they were writing down what they saw and they generally believe this is what they saw and that's what they're telling they're telling you as it was. Then you read Genesis accounts and you notice all kinds of funny things happen. First of all, that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are slightly different stories. They're telling the same story from a different perspective. And then it, it means you don't have to be a modern scientist to realize the first day you have the light and the darkness. And there was evening and morning the first day, morning and evening the first day, sorry. And then morning the second day, morning the third day. And on the fourth day, God creates the sun and the moon uh, and the stars also. Okay. Now, how do you have a morning and an evening without the sun and the moon? You don't need to be a modern scientist to realize that that, that's just not reportage. Okay. That's a very, it's a very stylized kind of prose. And then put yourself back into the time when this was written. What was the intelligentsia of the time, the kind of scientific elite of the time? Well, they were astrologers who believed the sun and the moon and the stars controlled our lives. And so what that passage is telling us is that God relegates them to the fourth day. They're not important enough until they're at the fourth day. And there's other indirect evidences. So the words for sun and moon that are used on the fourth day are not the proper nouns, sun and moon, but greater lamp and lesser lamp. Well, I think what the Bible is saying there is something which we now would call modern science. It's saying those things that you see up in the sky are lamps, like the things that you have in your tents. They're physical objects. That would have sounded as crazy to the people of the day as if you or I were to walk into the astrophysics department right next door and tell them that the moon and the stars are actually living beings who control our lives. You know, they would laugh me off the stage. I think, yeah, maybe so idiotic. That's what it would have sounded like to the people of the day when that was written down. So once you put that perspective on, it's completely clear why the sun and the moon are relegated and why it just says, and he created the stars also as a throwaway mark, remark, because people worship those things. But the Bible is telling them these are lights. They're not to be worshipped. They're relegated down. Well, once you realize that this is not being told in anything like a chronological way, when there are obvious tensions between the morning and evening and no sun and moon, then you realize that you really need to take a step back and ask yourself, is this passage reportage or is it trying to make different points? It's for sure making different points. Yeah, so God you... God can do it however he wants to. It could also reportage. But I think it's also a modern heresy to believe that, you know, proto-history is somehow the highest level of, of text, that God has to say mm -hmm. things in this kind of very linear way. But that's something yeah. that the modern West cares about. Most people yeah. in most of history were extremely adept at telling stories in non-chronological ways, for example, in order to make, to emphasize the truth. And so it's not like, I'm not saying, oh, you should take this in a non-chronological way to make it less true. It makes it more true. It makes it more powerful. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. So just so our listeners are aware, I guess, so you've kind of rejected, obviously, young earth creationism, which is the view that, that the world was created in six days, literally six days with with humans being created on 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 the sixth day so you've rejected that and instead you've said and you but you're saying I've not, I've not rejected literally it's perfectly possible that six day creation could be true 
It just it, the, the Bible is not probably the place to look for. You have to have some different argument for why you would believe that to be true. Yeah. Okay. The, text, you... the Genesis text. I don't think. I think it's a strange way of interpreting the Genesis text to, to to try to interpret that as six day creation. I think it just doesn't make any theological sense. Yeah. Um, there may be other arguments for why I would or wouldn't be a young earth creationist. I don't happen to fault have any, but I'm perfectly happy for somebody yeah. to have. Yeah. So you're saying that by not being a young earth creationist, it's it's certainly in your view not that you're rejecting the scripture at all. In fact, you think this is a much better way of reading the scriptures, reading them as they would they were meant to be read and not as not as you've called a proto history. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I think it, it's so obvious that they weren't meant to be read that way that I don't really see. I think you have to do a lot of work to turn them into that kind of text. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not saying it's impossible. You could, but I'd have to see some alternative arguments for why yeah. they did reading. So what? So what are they in, in your view? Obviously, you're a well, I, so I, you're a scientist. So what, what are the, what are the, the the reasons for? No, no, no. Sorry. What are the is it poetry? Is it something like that? Is yes, it a metaphor? I, I, I'm not a literary scholar, so I, I'm yeah. going to, I think it's some kind of elevated prose, right? But I think, you know, you, you only have to look a little bit around to the left, to the right at many other cultures, and you'll see that they often have quite complicated stories that they tell that are not necessarily chronological, but they don't, I mean, people don't think that therefore they're just made up, right? They are just different, different and more subtle literary forms. I, I hesitate to use the word poetry, uh-huh. because the Psalms are poetry, for example. Um, uh-huh. Psalms might be poetry. I don't think it's really poetry, but it's clearly not meant to be chronological either. And I don't see why that's problematic, that there could be more than one. It's clearly not chronological because you've got morning and evening and no sun and moon. I mean, and it's also interesting to note that through a long period of history, many early interpreters of these passages, think of Origen, think of Augustine and others, were perfectly happy with what they were, with this kind of these kinds of readings, they thought that was perfectly normal. So it's, it's not like I'm coming in with some kind of new novel interpretation. This is interpretation yeah. that the church fathers, some of the greatest church fathers, found perfectly plausible. Yeah, it's plausible. Yeah. The text very obviously points that way. Yeah, yeah. I know. Forgive, forgive the objection. I'm just trying to think of what our listeners might well, I, I, push, I, I push back against. For young earthers, because I've spoken with a lot of young earthers, I think one very strong argument that they would have for some kind of more proto-historical thing would be the question of where does evil come from, right? So if you read the Genesis text and you, particularly if you're thinking about where does natural evil come from, so that would be the idea that prior to Adam's fall, there was no natural evil in the world, that natural evil is a consequence of Adam's sin, and this gives you a kind of theodicy. It gives a kind of um. So my own experience from talking to my friends who are Earth creationists is that that often plays an important role hmm. in justifying. That would be an alternative argument yeah. on the text. Right? Yeah, I that guess why if if you believe that theodicy is a good theodicy, then um that might be an, an argument for trying to hold to something like that. Yeah, I see that. Thanks, Art. And I guess some might say, well, okay, well, let's say the days aren't chronological and that sort of thing, but this, but still. Perhaps some might say that you get the message that humans were created separately or in a special way. What, what would you say to that? Yeah, so I think humans are special. So again, our specialness does not come from our physicality. Right? That's not a biblical concept. That's a pagan concept. Our specialness comes from the fact that we are loved and chosen by God. 
And so I think that's what the text is trying to explain to us. And whether we were or were not created in some physically special way, I think is largely peripheral to that question of meaning and, and purpose. Mm. And so I don't think, I think we would do ourselves a favor to decouple those two things. Yeah. Brilliant. So your view, is it is it theistic evolution? Is that the, the right well, so term? I, I, this is a word which I realize has many connotations. So I believe that God created the entire world uh-huh. through a slow process. I think that's what of natural history, geology tells us things were very different a long time ago than they are now. We clearly see that change over time. And then the question is, how did God do that? But mm. I think there the most likely answer is some Darwinian-like mechanism of change over time. And the question then is, you know, is that great or not great? Is that cool or not cool? That's more of a natural theological question. And I say, well, I like to think of evolution being a little bit more like this. God could have made everything in fully formed and put them on the earth. If God wanted to, God can do whatever God likes, presumably. But God didn't choose that. God chose to make things over time. And I think it's somewhat similar to the following analogy. If I take Lego blocks, and for my children, I make them a fully formed train. I show it to them. They'll be very pleased. If I could make Lego blocks that I put into a box, and I shake the box for a little while, and then I open it, and it spontaneously formed a train that even if there's a few scratches on the train from the process of me shaking it, that would be, I think, enormously more cool. If I could do that, I'd make a lot of money as a toy manufacturer for sure. Um, But that would be super cool. And so I think that really what God has done is he's created a process that that creates something like ourselves. That's what I believe that we're studying when, um, as Christians, we study these kinds of processes that see change over time. Uh And And it's a process that you find Absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating, beautiful. So, you know, my yeah. current work is partially on trying to understand how on earth random mutations can generate so much beauty and so much symmetry around us. And they clearly have. I mean, another thing I should explain to you about this, which is hard for lay people to understand, but your more your engineering and your mathematical uh, listeners will recognize this. So in engineering and in physics and in mathematics we've learned and actually in finance we've learned that what people call stochastic algorithms algorithms where where you throw a die a whole bunch of times like monte carlo algorithms are probably the most efficient way of solving many high dimensional optimization problems so you know the interest rate that you get on a bank the price of a stock that a stockbroker makes they're using these kind of monte carlo random calculations all the time when you design a bridge it's used when you try to do that, you try to calculate um, wind tunnels uh, on a computer using these methods all the time because it's the most efficient way of, of simulating things. So, if God wanted to generate a process that could generate enormous amounts of complexity, then God would use such a stochastic algorithm. And the word stochastic is a scientific technical term for what in day to day language we call random. And I think that if instead of we talked about randomness in evolution, we stuck to the scientific word stochastic processes then all those other overtones that random has, like purposeless and meaningless, that the average layperson finds offensive, and understandably so, would be taken away. And we simply be asking ourselves whether a stochastic high-dimensional optimization process is the most efficient way of generating novelty. We know that it works in our immune system amazingly well. We know now from engineering and science and finance that this is a very effective way of optimizing things. So given that, knowledge is not surprising that God would choose such a technique or such a method to generate a kind of complexity, including human beings with whom God could have a relationship. 
Yeah, that's that's really helpful because it's an obvious objection, and of course brings up a lot of theological questions. I know Alvin Plankton in his book Where the Conflict Really Lies really gets into that. What what yeah. do we mean by random? So yeah. we've sort of seen the young earth creationists uh, on one side and then the theistic evolutionary view, your view on the other side. Is there anything, any views that are kind of close to yours, but not quite yours in terms of how Christians view? And so if you look at how Christians have viewed this over time, so something like young earth creationism is a relatively new phenomenon it's something mm-hmm. that's it's modern form really comes from comes out of seventh day adventism it was really popularized by a book called by henry morris in the 60s called the genesis flood so it's often linked to it's really more about flood geology in fact a lot of young earth creationists do believe in a kind of hyper evolution right so you had the animals or the kinds the barmen the kinds that came to on the ark and then obviously those diverge very quickly you have to have something like that if you want to have an a flood geology with an arc and a limited number of species that fits. You have to have some kind of rapid speciation, some kind of rapid evolution, but they believe that evolution happens within kinds. So even young earth creationists believe in some kind of evolution. It's a relatively modern phenomenon. An older tradition would be some kind of old earth creationism. So the idea would be the earth is old, but God created human beings at some specific special time. So that would be older creationism. That was much more popular in the 19th century or 20th century and held by many well-known theologians. And then you have, so what we might call loosely theistic evolutionists, people like myself, who believe that God used evolutionary processes to, to, to create, and that the world is old, and that the scientific things that we're seeing are, are not something that we're that worried about. Um, that we have to think about how they connect to our Christian faith if we, um, in one way or the other. And then you also have another movement in, that's come out of the United States, and that has, I think, is waning a little bit, but remains quite popular, called intelligent design. That's what I had in mind, yeah. Capital D. You know, every Christian believes that God designed the world. So we all believe in intelligent design. But when I say intelligent design in this context, it really means people who are skeptical of evolution number two. So they vary in how they think about the the, the evolution number one, the natural history. Some of them believe the earth is very old. Some of them believe basically something very close to theistic evolution in terms of the natural history. They don't believe that anything, they don't disagree with the scientific consensus on natural history, even though they realize that that consensus may not always be correct, but they don't worry about it. They're mainly worried about whether Darwinian evolution, so random mutations and natural selections, is sufficient to explain the diversity around us. That, in some sense, is a scientific question, and it's an interesting scientific question. I have sympathy for why people might think that way, and as long as people recognize that's a fundamentally scientific question, I think it's a perfectly interesting one to think about. It's never really taken off in the scientific mainstream for all kinds of complicated reasons we can discuss at a different time. Um, mm. So they're so, just a bit, skept- bit skeptical? Yeah, they're skeptical. So they're not just skeptical, they have arguments. So uh, perhaps the most famous argument is by Michael B. He was a Catholic a biologist, biochemist at Lehigh University, who basically says, if you look at complicated biological things like the bacteriophagellar motion is a very famous example. It's a motion that spins around, that spins a little tail that called the flagellum that bacteria used to swim with. It's a complicated machine. And he says it's too, it, it, it only works as a whole. You can't break it into part into little subparts. So either it came as a whole or it didn't come. And therefore that without we can't explain that complexity. That complexity is irreducible, is what he calls. So this has been a popular argument. Another set of arguments go a little bit like this. 
the space of biological possibility is extremely large. I, I've actually written a paper on this called Hyper Astronomical Numbers in Evolution. And so there are bad time reading. What? Some bad time reading. Good bad time reading. But actually, just for fun, so one of the key molecules in your body is a protein. These are little chain like molecules that fold into certain three dimensional shapes. And if you made, they're, they're made of an alphabet of 20 different blocks called amino acids. So at each point, you can have one of 20. You can choose one of 20 for the number one, one to number two. So if you make a protein length one, you've got 20 choices. Length two is 20 times 20 choices, 400 choices. Three, 20 times 20, 40, 400 times 20, 8,000. And that climbs really quickly. By the time you get to length 58, which is pretty short, if you made every protein of length 58, it would weigh more than all the observable mass in the universe. Wow. Okay? The average length of proteins in your body is about in the 400s. So this space of possibilities is just unbelievably big. It's so big you can't imagine it because even just 58 is already more than the universe. 400 is just many, many, it's 10 to the 500 times the size of the universe, something like that. Crazy. You can't imagine it. So their argument is, look, that space is so big that if you try to find function in that space, the so proteins that work, you're never going to find them because it's an unsearchably big space. That's the argument, effectively. And so, therefore, since that is unsearchably big, something else must have happened, um, is the claim. Wow. Now, that's an interesting argument. I, I think the argument is incorrect, but that's a technical reasons. Sure. I think it's a perfectly interesting way of formulating the question. I think I found that quite interesting. I thought, yeah, that's interesting. How, wait, how does that work? Clearly and then some- you responded, you wrote a paper about it. Yeah, I've I've, I've, written, I've written some papers in on uh, where I've looked at that. In fact, that question definitely was in the back of my mind. I thought that's an interesting question. I find it very interesting. Um, I, my thing is clearly I see it around me all the time that functional proteins are found, right? Mm-hmm. So nature is able to solve that problem. So how on earth does it do so? Mm-hmm. Is the question. And I think I've, in my more recent work, found some arguments that explain that quite nicely. And I think they're very beautiful arguments, very interesting arguments. That doesn't take away that that's that's a very that idea of that the spaces are big and that function is very hard to find has been popularized by the I, the ID movements. Brilliant. So I, I'm not. I personally am not a big fan of the movement. I think it has theological difficulties more than anything else. Mm, okay. Um, but I'm. I also think that no question should be out of bounds. Mm. And I think there's always it's good in science to have some kind of eccentric people on the fringes asking funny questions. Because you never know when that might suddenly become very fruitful. Right? Yeah, be wrong, right? So I, yeah. I very much dislike I mean, the idea. People have been badly treated by some of my non-Christian colleagues, mm. and I think the bad treatment is partially because they're worried about pseudoscience, mm. and I understand that. But there's partially because I think for some people, evolutionism, evolution number three, functions effectively as a worldview, and so if you start trying to pick at that, then your people get very mad. And I think that's a bad reason to object to intelligent design on that. Yeah. So I think they're perfectly, I think, you know, the, the, the interesting, the, the difficult theological questions have to do with natural history, really, not so much with evolution number two, but well, who knows? It's an interesting thing. To yeah. Think about. Yeah. Really interesting. A, I, I don't really think that ID arguments um, will work, will stand the test of time. I think that they, they're not quite out of the gaps type arguments, but they, they're similar in, in, when I talk about ID friends, they get very unhappy when I say it's the God of the gaps. They say it's not. So I'm probably missing, maybe I'm misunderstanding. I'm misunderstanding something about the arguments, but I, I, every time I read it, it sounds like God of the gaps to me. Yeah. And I'm actually not smart enough to understand why it isn't. Um, it's so interesting. So as, as we sort of 
draw to a close. I mean, one of the things that really comes across when we're speaking art is how much you love this stuff, even though you got a cold and you're sipping lamb soup <laughs> and uh, you're, 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 you're sweating. Um, you, you actually, you just, you're animated by it. So what for people like you, who are scientists, what, like what, what do you think the biggest challenge is when it comes, when it tries trying to bring together science and, and the Christian faith? Well, so interesting, interestingly, um, I actually don't, I think that science is one of the subjects where it's the easiest to be a Christian. Uh, yeah. I've got many Christians in my, in the physics department here in Oxford. Uh, we occasionally meet together to talk about some question on science and faith. We never talk about, you know, how hard it is to mix these things. Because yeah. that's not something that we, we find. We, that's, not, that's not something that we experience. We ask ourselves all kinds of questions about free will and determinism and how does this work in quantum mechanics. All these kinds of questions that are very fun to think about. But we're not trying to shore up each other's faith because it's the other way around. By looking at the natural world and understanding more about it and seeing how beautiful it is, you can't but sense something of the glory and grandeur of God. So I think the more you understand science, the more you understand things, the more it points you towards God rather than away. I actually think that it's much harder to be a Christian in business or in law. I think it's harder to be a Christian in the humanities than it is in the sciences. I think the sciences are actually one of the places where it's the easiest to be a Christian. Uh, intellectually, easiest intellectually, fit. Intellectually, yes. Yeah. So I think, yeah. Yeah. So I do think, I think what are the, what's the main way that science is possibly toxic for my faith? I think it's because if I start thinking that the scientific method is the only way that truth can be found, then I'll start having an impoverished life and I'll miss out on on spiritual ways of finding truth for example, other ways of finding truth. And actually I would go further and say science is the most amazing thing we've ever experienced we've ever we've ever um uh, invented as human beings. But to think that it's ever going to answer the existential questions of life, the questions of what's the meaning of life or how should I live or what's the purpose of life, it's just ludicrous. It it cannot and not only can it not, but no conceivable vault of science will answer it. I go one step further and say it's actually dangerous if you do that. So you do see people like popularizer science who wrap themselves in the mantle of science and make pronouncements about what it means to be human or what a good life is or what's right or what's wrong and say that science somehow is telling you that. But they're they're just, that's actually bad and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. I've already mentioned before, we think, I mean, you and I think, and most people in well-thinking people believe that humans have intrinsic value that's independent of their characteristics, you know, whether they're rich or poor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's now codified often in, in the language of human rights. But effectively, the, the, the underlying that is the idea that humans have intrinsic value, intrinsic dignity. Well, that's a deeply Christian idea that comes from the idea that our value comes from God who loves us. Now, my grandparents in the Netherlands were very staunch secular humanists, and they just believed that humans had intrinsic value. That was just true. And they didn't have, they said they didn't need to give a reason for it. They just believe that it's true. I, I respect that too. I just think it's intellectually less, less. it's not slightly worrying, right? Because there's no roots about it, except that it's a preference of some kind. Whereas I think I can derive it from a deeper principle. Mm-hmm. Let's say I try to use science to derive that principle. Right? Science always finds differences, right? So if I have a chemist, right? It's not true that somebody with gold fillings is worth more than somebody without gold fillings. I'm a psychologist. Someone who's smarter is not worth more than somebody who's less smart. I'm an economist, somebody who's richer or produces more is not worth more than somebody who produces less. The minute I start using science, 
not only does it give me nonsensical answers, but it actually is dangerous. I start um, treating people different based on some measure that I'm I'm trying to work out. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's therefore a really important basic question that, that affects all of our public life and our private life, which is the intrinsic dignity and value of human beings has to come from a non-scientific source. And the question only is, do you have a good argument for that or a bad argument for that? Mm-hmm. Or if you're a hardcore Darwinian, I think, and you believe there's nothing else but science, basically that erodes away this idea that humans have intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, I think it's a dangerous point of view, but I think it's also incorrect. And it's almost like a reduction ad absurdum, why it cannot possibly be, why scientism right. is, it cannot possibly be true, because it, it, it produces these kind of insane and crazy um, yeah. conclusions. Yeah. So the humanities have some value. Well, it has a huge value. I, know, I know. I'm kidding. Theology might have some value. Just, just <laughs> that's huge value because, of course, the, the, that's where you are looking at these big questions and where they come from. Of course, right? yeah, and not just theology, English, and, and, English and, and everything that, else. Yeah. What it's done was asking these big questions and trying to look at it from different angles. And hmm. well, sure, those are difficult questions to answer, right? Just but just because it's difficult doesn't mean they're not important. Right? Yeah, but science is not going to give us the answers. Amen, brother. Amen. Well, Art, thank you so much for joining us. It's been fascinating. I sometimes speak a bit more, but on this one, I've said very little because I'm out of my depth. So I'm just asking questions, but I've really enjoyed it. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us at the Cretan Culture Podcast, where we explore the questions of the Christian faith. Do subscribe and see you next time.